0: Now, when we look at awards that are given out, uh, you know, all over the world when it comes to the arts, every country has got their own awards where you have to be a citizen of that particular country to actually win that award. Whereas America is the only country in the world that, uh, you know, that when it comes to the Oscars, Emmys, Tonys, uh, Grammys, you can be a citizen of any part of the world and you don't have to prove anything about your citizenship or your residency, and you can win an award, which shows how secure Americans are in general with their art. And also, when it comes to artists in America, for them, the world is their playground.
1: Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes. Hey, everyone, Nick Nanton here, and I'm super excited to be here with Grammy award-winning composer uh, Ricky Kedge. I will do an introduction of him in a second, but because you can already see him and it's just all sort of awkward, Ricky, how's it going?
0: (laughs) Going good, going good, and thank you for making it less awkward. Otherwise, I would have just had to be staring into the camera while you're introducing me. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) No, no worries. And and I want to make sure, I, I think I'm saying your last name correctly, but I'm probably not. How do I say it the right way?
0: Uh, so, the right way is how you would say, how we pronounce a bird cage, C A G E, just like how you would say Nicholas Cage.
1: Okay. Good deal, uh, Nick. Uh, Ricky Cage, it is. All right. So <laughs> let me give you a quick bio, everybody. Really impressive background. Ricky Cage is a Grammy Award-winning Indian music composer who has performed in over thirty countries, including at the United Nations headquarters in New York and Geneva. He is also a renowned environmentalist and has been named United Nations Global Humanitarian Artist. Ricky won a Grammy at the fifty-seventh annual Grammy Awards in twenty fifteen for his album Winds of Samsara. I was actually at that Grammys. I'll tell you. Um, which was in the Best New Age album category. The album also debuted at number one on the U.S. Billboard New Age album chart in August 2014. His incredible body of work includes 17 studio albums, over 3,500 commercials, and four feature films. Uh, Now Ricky has a new album out titled Divine Tides, which was produced in collaboration with another legend, five-time Grammy Award winner Stuart Copeland of the band The Police, which you've probably heard of. Um, If you haven't, we need to start in a different place. Um, The (laughs) album is a tribute to the magnificence of our natural world and it features many acclaimed artists from around the world. Ricky, awesome to have you. And fun fact, the first Grammys I ever went to was the the opening was the reuniting of the police. So I uh, had never seen them. Obviously, they had been on quite a hiatus. And uh, I will be honest with you, I really didn't understand the police or sting until I... I didn't really understand the police or Sting until I saw them live. I just was blown away by Sting's voice. Um, it was like, it, it was mind blowing. And I had never heard, I, I'll tell you the only other voice I feel like I've heard that's that crisp is Alison Krauss and I've just been a huge fan of hers my entire life and I heard Sting I go, oh I get it now. There's certain bands I just feel like you gotta, I don't know, maybe I'm just a slow learner but I didn't get it and then I saw Sting with a symphonic orchestra which was mind-blowing as well Um, I will also again I'll admit I'll admit all my warts in front of the audience here uh, and then we'll learn some good things about you but I also didn't get you too. I really I liked Octoon Baby it came out when I was in middle school I thought you know one was a killer song but I didn't really get the whole deal and then I saw them at the Grammys and I go Oh, now I, now I get this. So a few, a few of my warts, everyone can see those. Uh, for the most part, the rest of my musical taste is pretty spot on, I think. Um, but Ricky, you started out, um, so you're from India. Um, well, you're from North Carolina. And so so how, did you, how did you get to North Carolina and then to India? Give us that story. So, yeah,
0: so my father is a doctor and uh, he was a doctor in North Carolina. He immigrated to America uh, when he just passed out of medical college. And uh, so he was a doctor over there for about 30, 35 years. And I was born in America. And at that particular point of time, uh, there was no plans to actually move back to India for my parents. So that's why I got a Western name, Ricky. And not a complicated Indian name because my father has a very complicated Indian name, so he did not want me to suffer the same uh, consequences of having that kind of a name. So I was in America for about uh, eight years, and uh, I lived in this uh, I, uh, I lived in this really small town in uh, North Carolina, which is on the border with Virginia. It's called Roanoke Rapids, and uh, so it was sort of like in the middle of nowhere, a very small town. And my father was a very popular doctor over there, and uh, you know, and uh, we had a lot of wooded areas around our home. So we would have a lot of creepy crawly animals and dangerous animals walking into our home. So it was it, it was a great life. And then when I was eight years old, that's when my family decided to move back to India. So ever since then, I've been in India.
1: So tell me about that Um in, I'm an immigrant myself. My, I'm from the, my parents and my family, and I was born in the Caribbean islands and and Barbados. And you know, it's interesting when you are an outsider in a different country. Um, I think it's all about, I mean, so much about life is about perception, so I'm not going to go too deep there. But I think we have these perceptions of how we fit in and how we belong. It would be interesting to me, to, to, for you, how did you feel like you fit in in North Carolina? And then did you get, did you also maybe feel like uh, when you moved to India, like you didn't quite fit in there? Like that seems to be a possibility. So tell me about those two places and, and how it was growing up. Actually,
0: uh, to be honest, I was very too young. I was uh, I was very young to actually uh, 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 to actually uh, have the perception of like you know a difference between America and India. Uh, but I do remember that the only difficulties I faced was that when I got into, when I when I reached India and I had to get into second grade uh, you know school in India. Uh, the thing is that I had to learn Indian history instead of American history. Uh, and in India, every kid has to learn two languages and sometimes three languages rather than just English. So I found it very difficult to pick up a second language, and I still find it difficult. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. So these were the actual difficulties. <clears throat> but uh, about being an outsider in America, uh, uh, to be really honest, uh, you know, when my parents talk to me about that, uh, they have only good things to say because uh, my father was very welcome in America. He felt very, very welcome in America, and in fact, uh, he was a very successful doctor over there. And Uh, He would tell me that, uh, you know, that people were always very nice to him. In fact, the other doctors in the same town were all very nice to him, even though he was competing with them. And, uh, you know, and uh, uh, he saw some success very quickly. So he felt very uh, welcome. In fact, I can tell you one small story that happened that when I was born, I was born in 1981. And uh, that was... uh, pretty much when uh, Ronald Reagan became uh, president of America. And my dad, uh, what he did was that, you know, uh, uh, that was the exact time when, you know, he got his passport uh, as an American citizen. And, you know, and uh, so he was feeling really proud of being an American. And he sent a letter to uh, President Ronald Reagan saying that, you know, that uh, I've been in America for this many years and I just had a son and, you know, so I just wanted to write to you. And apparently he got written back by Ronald Reagan in his own handwriting. Uh, in just about like uh, in in just I think a couple of months he got a letter congratulating him and with a uh, with a photograph with a signature and you know and uh, so that really boosted him quite a lot you know my dad <laughs>
1: that's that's cool well look I mean I think there are pockets of. I mean, there's pockets of terror all over the world, and America is certainly not immune to that. Um, there are bullies everywhere. There's certainly way more racism than there should be. There's way more sexism than there should be. There's all these, but I really feel like most of the people that I meet. Other than look, um, I had a few bullies in school. I think everyone did. I mean, if if you didn't, you you didn't get a normal human experience. Because unfortunately, there's just a small percentage. But for most people who I meet with and speak with, like these these like these grand perceptions are rarely true so like for me I, I could just see this narrative that's why I brought up of like you know maybe you didn't fit in too well here and then maybe when you moved to India they're like oh that's the the kid who thinks he's India but he's from America like these things and there's probably one or two little kids in every school that would do that to somebody but for the most part like what what a great thing that your family was able to come here your father was able to build a, a respected career and he wrote to the president and got something back like I I truly believe that that is what most of America really is um, and I wish we'd learn, I wish we'd hear more about that narrative I, I think again, in many times in life, what you look for is what you find as well um, I know that's not always true, trouble can find you when you're just minding your own business but there's an awful lot of times when when you're looking for it that you will find negativity, whatever else you're looking for um, No, actually to add uh, to I
0: just wanted to quickly add something to that uh, there, I'm sorry please. for interrupting you but the thing is that Uh, uh, what you said is absolutely true. And uh, even though I do acknowledge that there are problems that need solving and there are huge uh, systemic problems that need addressing, uh, uh, I'd like to say something about America, you know, being sort of like an outsider right now because I've lived in India for almost all my life. Now, when we look at awards that are given out, uh, you know, all over the world when it comes to the arts, in Canada, there is the Juno Award. And you know, to win the Juno Award, you have to be a resident of uh, Canada or a Canadian citizen. And Australia's got the ARIA Awards, similar, and uh, South Africa's got the Sama Awards. India's got the Jima Awards. Every country has got their own awards where you have to be a citizen of that particular country to actually win that award. <clears throat> Whereas America is the only country in the world that, uh, you know, that when it comes to the Oscars, Emmys, Tonys, uh, Grammys, you can be a citizen of any part of the world. And you don't have to prove anything about your citizenship or your residency. And you can win an award, which shows how secure Americans are in general with their art. And also when it comes to artists in America, for them, the world is their playground and not just their own country. So that is what I even said when I accepted my Grammy Award. That is exactly what I said on stage. I said that it's only in America that an Indian and my partner who won the Grammy along with me, a South African, can actually win. Uh, the biggest music award at their biggest uh, musical night, you know. So, uh, so I feel that uh, you know the, that Americans, even though I, I acknowledge that there are problems, but Americans do not celebrate uh, their uh, uh, you know their unity and diversity as much as they should. Actually,
1: I I absolutely love it. All right, so. You, most of your life, you wanted to be a musician. Uh, your parents weren't thrilled with that choice, uh, it sounds like, or they at least wanted you to do something different. So <laughs> so you went to dental school. So tell me about this. I mean, did you go all the way through and you could have gone out right out and started working on teeth? Or tell me about that.
0: So it's in our 12th grade in India that we have to make a very strong decision as to what we want to do for the rest of our lives, you know? So I had made a very strong decision that I'm going to be a musician for the rest of my life and music is not just going to be a hobby or an evening thing, it's, it's going to be my bread and butter, it's going to be my profession and I want to do music till the day I die. So with that very, uh, with that same, uh, you know, uh, with that same energy, I went to my dad, who's a third-generation doctor and an Indian parent. And those of you who know Indian parents, you know that you know that you cannot say no to your Indian parent. So I went to my father and I told him that, Dad, I want to be a musician. And he just kept staring at me, like you know, I, he was sort of waiting for the punchline. And uh, that's when I told him that, No, Dad, I really want to be a professional musician. And He said that, what do you mean? Music is not a profession. You know, you have to be something else and then you can do music in the evenings. So then, so then after a lot of fighting with my father, a lot of drama at home, it was severe drama. um, You know, I reached a compromise with my father that I would finish off a degree in dental surgery. And once I finish off the degree, my life is my own. And uh, he would never question me again for the rest of my life. Uh, So that's exactly what I did. I went to college for five years. In the evenings, my professional career in music had already begun. I was already composing music for commercials and things like that. And at the end of five years, I got my degree. I took the certificate, went to my father, gifted it to him, and I told him that I'm not going to practice even for a single day. and uh, that is when uh, that is what started off my uh, morning to evening musical career, you know so I became a full-time musician after that.
1: Well, despite my appearance, I do not have Indian parents, no, but I, my <laughs> parents also uh, were you know, immigrant parents. They, they were very supportive. My brother was an actor and a playwright in high school, and I played music, and they were very supportive, but they said, hey, you can do whatever you want to do in life, just make sure you get a profession. And my brother and I are like, Phew. And then my brother goes to medical school and ruins it for both of us, so I went to law school as well. Um, and <laughs> You know, he is a practicing child forensic psychiatrist, and I'm, I don't know, uh, a restless creative over here. But I, I did <laughs> i did go to law school. I did pass the bar exam. I'm still active in, in the bar. I'm a member. Um, but tell me this, because I think this is a really interesting question for most people, and we are going to get to your new album with Stuart Copeland. Everyone should check it out, by the way. Lots of cool videos, lots of cool music. We're going to get there. But I, I love to know where people came from. Um, do you... Obviously it's going to be a, the perspective is a bit uh, of uh biased because you went through the schooling. Um, do you, do you wish you, are you glad you went through that schooling and, and some of the things you took from that? Or do you wish you just would have skipped those five years and gone directly to music?
0: See, one always looks at a silver lining that, you know, oh, maybe it was not all a waste of time, you know, going to college for five years and doing a degree that I would never use. So the silver lining obviously is that, you know, I had all the social interactions and uh, you know, and uh, you know, and actually, uh, I think I would have definitely benefited out of the discipline of going to college for five years. Uh, but of course, you know, at the end of the day, I don't blame my father for uh, for forcing me to do that degree and wasting five years of my life when I could have had a better musical education. Uh, simply because I understand that he was driven by fear, you know, like most parents: uh, fear of me starving to death, fear of me not being successful, fear of what he would tell his relatives as to what his son does for a living. You know, things like that, you know. So those are things that drove him. Whereas for me, it was all about passion and my love for music. But, you know, I cannot help thinking that what if I was fearful? And after I got that degree in dental surgery, I decided to get into that profession just like your brother did. You know, imagine if I was fearful that, uh, you know, okay, let me start a clinic and let me go to the clinic from 9 to 5. And in the evenings, I can do music. Because uh, if I do this whole clinic thing, at least it's a traditional career path. And I'll end up making some amount of money. So I would go to my clinic from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock. I would be very frustrated. I would be a very frustrated professional. I would be treating patients. I would be doing all these you know, tooth extractions and drilling holes into people's teeth. And all that I would be thinking about is when can I go back home and play on my piano or you know compose some music. So in that kind of situation, would you like to have come to me for some kind of a surgical procedure? Right. I mean, <laughs> so so that's why. So I'm really glad that I wasn't fearful, and you know, I I, uh, I sort of jumped into the deeper end of the swimming pool, and you know, and just found my way out through music, and you know, and I decided not to practice even for a single day, and I decided just to jump into music, and so I'm very grateful that I did that.
1: I, I love that. I, I that's well. It reminds me also of our mutual friend Peter Diamandis. You know, Peter graduated Harvard as an MD, and the president of medical school said, "I will let you graduate." only if you promise me you will never practice medicine because you are not interested oh. in this ever. And so that's how Peter graduated, right? So.
0: Wow, I did not know about that story because that was the exact same story that I have. Really? Uh, what happened for me is that uh, in my final year, uh, we had a subject called oral surgery where uh, you know, for the final exam, they give you a patient and uh, you know, who's got a certain, uh, uh, who requires a certain surgical procedure and you have to do that uh, in order to pass. So, the patient that I had gotten, uh, you know, I opened his mouth and I realized that I had no idea what was wrong. And uh, so I went, it was something that I hadn't studied because I did not realize it was important for the exam. So I just sat back and I decided not to touch the patient because I did not want to ruin his life. And uh, the professor over there told me that, you know, that uh, Ricky, why, why don't you at least try? So I said, I'm not going to ruin this guy's life. So I just sat down and at the end of it, my professor told me that we are obviously failing you. So you're going to have to repeat a year. And, uh, that is when I went to my professor and I explained to him that I'm not going to be a dentist. You know it because I was already in the papers at that time and I was already a successful musician. So I told him that, you know, I'm not going to be a dentist. All that you're going to do is waste one year of my life. So why don't you just let me go through? So the te- the professor actually made me swear that, you know, that I'm not going to be a dentist. And then he allowed me
1: to pass. <laughs> <laughs> well, so That's Peter's story as well. I will wow, say, what? yeah, I will say on the other side of things, my brother, uh, loves what he does. And I think the world's a better place because there's not many people willing to delve in to that many types of problems that people are dealing with that are not not physical, not visible. Uh, So God has a plan. That's the good news. Now, uh, here's an interesting thing. You know, uh, probably because I'm not nearly as talented as you in music. I can comfortably say that, like very truthfully, and that's not pandering. Absolutely Like, Do do you feel like, I feel like music is the hardest business in the world. I really do. Um, Do you feel not that way? I mean, you've had amazing success. I'm just interested in your perspective on that.
0: No, definitely. I uh, I 100% agree with you that music is the toughest business in the world, Uh, simply because of the way that musicians have to constantly pivot, you know? Like from the gramophone days to CDs to cassettes and then stream and then MP three downloads then streaming nobody actually knows how to monetize your music you know nobody has got the answer you know and uh, you you can watch like a hundred seminars you can go to a hundred uh, you know uh, conferences and you know and still you don't have the answer and right now during this pandemic it's obviously made things much worse because for the last 4 or 5 years i realized that okay this is how i have to monetize my music you know i uh, i gain popularity through streaming platforms and then i go ahead and sure. i book myself for gigs and i make money through touring and that's what i was doing for the last 5 or 6 years and like for example in 2019 i did 70 concerts in 13 countries and uh, now that's out of the window and that's gonna be out of the window, in and out of the window for about for about the next few years. I'm pretty sure because the pandemic is gonna keep, you know, uh, keep coming in in waves. So basically now we are back to square one and we are wondering that how the hell do we make music? I mean, make money out of music. So music is in fact the toughest business uh, uh, just because there is no traditional pathway uh, to actually making money even if you've got the best product out there.
1: Uh, yeah, and so you've also, you've done a lot of, um artistic music and you've done a bunch of commercial music how do you do you treat those differently in your mind or, or just tell me the way you approach both those things so you've done a lot of work for commercials and films which is essentially not that it's not creative it certainly is but it's, it's music for hire typically um, I imagine the commercials might even strike you a little bit differently than the films but then there's like albums so tell me tell me about that
0: So when I started off my career, I did a whole lot of commercials for television and radio. So uh, in a span of about 13 years, I was quite successful. I was doing, I did more than 3,500 of them. And uh, uh, so I was working really, really hard, you know, because I really wanted to prove myself. So there were days when I was doing three commercials a day. Like in the morning, I would get a brief to do a commercial in India. So I would wake up in the morning and an Indian client would call me up at about like eight o'clock or nine o'clock. And I would start off work on that. I would wrap up that particular commercial by about two or three o'clock. And then somebody from Europe would call me up and, you know, and schedule uh, uh, a recording that would go on to about 1.00 AM. And then at about one or 2.00 AM, somebody from Los Angeles would call me up or somebody from, uh, you know, uh, from Canada would call me up and, you know, and I would work on uh, work on a commercial on that. So I was working multiple time zones, doing a whole lot of work. And uh, at the end of, uh, Thirteen years, something really struck me. Actually, that uh, because I was into a lot of social causes by then, and I was a very, very strong environmentalist, and I still am. Uh, so uh, it sort of struck me that these big brands have understood the power of music so much so that they're ready to spend a couple of thousand dollars on me to actually create uh, uh, create a piece of music for them to sell something. You know, because they're always trying to sell something, and uh, so they understood that music is such a powerful language, not just for communicating a message, but somehow for retaining that message in people's head. You know. And uh, that is when I decided that I want to explore the power of music, you know, and uh, uh, and I made a very strong commitment to myself. This is around 2014 that I would stop all forms of commercial music and I would only create music on themes that I feel strongly about. And uh, which is which is positive social impact and we'll, especially in a country like India and which is about, envir- uh, about the environment and things like that. So that started off another journey of mine. But my commercial days, I absolutely love them because uh, I believe that Uh, that was a better music education than my actual music education simply because I got to work with a different creative person every single day and every day was a different challenge like yesterday I would have made uh, an Indian folk jingle today I make uh, a Celtic jingle. Tomorrow, I get to make a rap jingle. So I'm on my toes for every genre of music. I meet all these musicians from around the world, make all these amazing collaborations, and all these different forms of music started finding its way into my aesthetic. And that's why my music is so varied, because all these different genres of music. And it's it's also like a workout, you know, that uh, the the more you work out in a gym, the better you get at it. And I believe that the more I was composing these short jingles, uh, the better I was getting at composing, you know. So I owe a lot of my music... uh, Uh, My musical whatever uh, The little expertise that I have uh, To my jingle days
1: That's great and then in 2015 You won uh, A Grammy for your 14th studio album Um, You had 120 artists from all over the world And you topped the New Age Albums chart For uh, the top 10 Position for 12 weeks Uh, Tell me did you know that album Was going to be that that big going into it Like did you say oh I see an opportunity Here or did you just Was this just music you had to make? Where were you at during that time?
0: So the album itself, uh, it's an album called Winds of Samsara and it was a collaboration between me and a South African flute player. Uh, So when we met and decided to collaborate, we had come across a huge coincidence that I had just finished making a piece of music on my father of the nation, that is Mahatma Gandhi. And uh, he had just finished making a piece of music on his father of the nation, that is Nelson Mandela. So the uh, the whole collaboration started just on these two pieces of music because Mahatma Gandhi spent his formative years in South Africa, so he had a lot of South Africanness in him, and Nelson Mandela was heavily inspired by Mahatma Gandhi, so he had a lot of Indianness. So all this cross pollination was going on with these different musical forms and ideas of peace, tolerance, and love. So that's why we decided to just collaborate on these two pieces of music, but then the collaboration extended beyond that, and we collaborated for two and a half years. And we had an album ready. So what I love about that album is that the album was pretty much organically created. And it wasn't created with the intention of actually creating an album and selling it. And, uh, but we did have an album ready at the end of two and a half years. So we released the album and we knew it was a special album and the album uh, hit. uh, And of course we did market it very strongly. And uh, the album uh, hit uh, number one on the Billboard charts, as you mentioned, and it was uh, in the top 10 for about 12 weeks. We won a whole lot of awards all over the world. And that ended up with us actually getting the nomination for the Grammy and then finally winning it. So uh, that is an album experience that I'm really uh, grateful for.
1: So let me ask you this: the day you won the Grammy, you wake up the next day. What's your first thought? <laughs> that life is pretty much still the same. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and, and what's next, right? You know, what's next? What do I now? What do I do to not only top what I've done before, whether it's Award winning or not, but how do I stretch myself? People ask me all the time, you know, oh, how did winning an Emmy change your life? I, and I would say, you know, it validated me in a way, which in some cases is sort of sad that I felt I need that external validation, but I think we all have those thoughts. But then, we all do. Yeah. But then the next thing was like, well, what's next? Because you don't, they don't give you a Grammy or an Emmy and a million dollars. Like you, you already made your money typically on that thing a year ago and you're, what's next? And so that's, uh, I, I was just interested in your perspective on that. From there, um, you you decided to start creating, well, a few years later, um, this album. Well, let me say this. Um, you, your emphasis on sustainability um, helped you earn a spot on GQ's Heroes List in 2020. I mean, you've been, obviously, this hasn't been a side thing where you're only gonna work on projects that have social impact. Um, and it talks about, in that article in GQ, it talks about you mentoring refugees from Afghanistan and Myanmar living in India in musical composition. Tell me about that. Uh, what is it like to work with people who have left everything behind? Uh, I, I have a couple experiences like that too, but just share those with us.
0: No, so, uh, so what happened was that uh, so, uh, I mean, that uh, I, from the heart, am always an environmentalist, but uh, India is a very complicated country and like most developing nations where, uh, you know, where you have two kinds of problems. You've got survival problems and you've got thriving problems, you know. So uh, the environment is always considered to be a thriving problem. And the more immediate, uh, perceivably immediate stuff, like, for example, uh, violence and uh, hunger and inequality, gender inequality, gender violence and uh, hunger these are considered to be more uh, survival problems so basically if you go to a rural area in India where there is adjunct poverty uh, you know and uh, you and a person who does not have money for food and if you tell that person that oh let's make a better world for our children and our children's children they're just gonna get up and they're gonna slap you they're gonna be like, what about me? I don't have money for my next meal you know? and uh, i don't have electricity i don't i'm not productive after 6 30 in the evening when it becomes dark i need all these things you know and i uh, and i need to survive so you know like i don't care about the environment i just want electricity you know so the thing is that uh, so basically that is when i started realizing when i started meeting these people and understanding their problems i started realizing that i cannot just be an environmentalist i need to have a holistic approach towards getting towards my goal of you know of working towards having a better uh, better future in terms of climate action, in terms of the environment, in terms of species. So one such thing is refugees, and I work a lot with the UNHCR, that is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, a two-time Nobel Peace Prize-winning organization. So what happened was that they were telling me stories about uh, about these refugees who are musicians in their own countries, and uh, mainly because of their music, they were thrown out of their countries. You know, because of their artistic sensibilities and because of being musicians. So they identified twenty-five such musicians and during the pandemic i mentored them uh, you know uh, online uh, uh, for about uh, 3 months i mentored them i would do two sessions per week and uh, at the end of it i got so close to these amazing amazing people like for example one of them had participated after uh, the after america had its presence in uh, in afghanistan uh, this guy from afghanistan he uh, fantastic amazing soulful singer Uh, He participated in the Afghan Idol show, a show which was started over there, there, just like American Idol. And he won that show. And the Taliban, which was in hiding over there, they basically threatened him and his family. And uh, he was forced uh, to leave the country. He was forced to flee the country without anything, his whole family, because they were 100 percent sure that they would be killed like any minute. So he had to flee. And then, of course, India gave him uh, a refugee status and he's living in India. But he cannot even think about music right now because he's a refugee. So he needs to think about his survival, he needs to think about his food, his money, his family, and all of that stuff. So he's doing other work. So basically the all their stories are similar. And we did a song together, we released a song and uh, and uh, you know and the last thing that I'd like to say about this particular project was that you know that uh, when we were discussing what kind of a song we would create, you know, I was keeping in mind that, you know, it would be a very dark song about all the troubles and tribulations they faced and, you know, about the death and destruction and things like that. And all 25 of them, all that they were talking about is that we want to give hope to this world, you know. We want to sing about, like, you know, about shining a light to everyone. We want to uh, sing about, you know, about uh, that uh, making this world a better place. And you, you, if we could survive all of this, then you can, you know, you can overcome any obstacle and things like that. And that is what really drew me to these people. And I'm still in touch with every single one of them. And, you know, and I absolutely love them
1: that that's incredible work. Uh I the human spirit's an amazing thing, right? And and to even try to fathom what those people go through is is next to impossible. I was filming in February of 2019. Uh no, February, yeah. February we're in twenty twenty one now. February twenty twenty, right before the pandemic, pandemic. shut everything down. I was filming in Iraq and we were filming in uh, Syrian refugee camps, and I was blown away by uh, people were clearly in situations outside their control. In many cases, terrible situations. I mean, a lot of those refugee camps. I mean, terrible atrocities happen to human beings, and it's bad. But so many of the people there were so uplifted and bright like I had kids. I mean, it's like kids running around like with no awareness of what's happening Around them and it's just amazing how resilient the human spirit is and I don't know about you But when I think of places like Iraq or a Syrian refugee camp, I'm afraid like instantly my mind goes to like Sounds like I'm gonna die. I gotta say, you know, wherever I've been with any type of people in the world 99.9% 99.9% of them are beautiful, amazing people. And it's such a nice reminder. It's unfortunate we can't travel to many places right now, but it's such a great reminder that humans are humans. You know, most humans want to want to engage with you. I mean, there's, there's stereotypes that unfortunately we've all bought into, but I remember when I went to, uh, Paris for the first time, and I think it was 2019, uh, filming with James Altucher. And I had a Pretty set in my mind that I had to be prepared to be insulted a lot. I needed to be prepared for people to not be very welcoming. I had the most amazing time, really friendly people for the most part. There were a few people, but I'm sure, I mean, it's no different than New York City or a backwoods town here in Florida. Where there's always people, but people, I was just shocked how much I'd bought into the narrative that, you know, Parisians weren't going to be very nice. And it's, I, I love hearing those stories of deep connection. I always encourage people. And it's a reminder for myself, too, because we get busy in life when an opportunity taps on your door like that to serve. Just say yes. I mean, I've never had an opportunity like that that didn't make my life exponentially richer. And from what you're saying now, these relationships, you have these people like what? what an amazing blessing in your life. You know, we all think that when we're asked to serve in a capacity like that, we're going to be giving a lot or, but we always end up getting the most. We always end up getting amazing gifts from it. So I'm sure you'd back that up, but I just say, if you get, if someone asks you to serve, it's like a celestial knock, just trust me, it's worth saying yes. Would you agree?
0: no 100% because uh, in fact uh, the, our book of philosophy in india that is the gita uh, that says quite clearly that uh, a, if a, a person who serves another person uh, gains more than the person he or she has served you know so uh, and and that's true actually because if you let yourself serve somebody else you gain a lot out of it you know and uh, th- and there is no substitute for that uh, uh, that uh, that uh, intangible thing that you gain out of it
1: uh, completely agree. And I also find when when I don't know what to do next, even the beginning of the pandemic or whatever, if I just stop doing what I was doing and serve someone else, it changes my entire mindset. And usually other answers come to me. And I've also found when you just show up and serve, opportunity abounds because people see the real you, and, and I mean truly serving, not serving for gain, um, just yes. truly serving, then then gain does come to you. So it's it's interesting how that works. All right. Finally, we're going to get to Divine Tides with Stuart Copeland of The Police, incredible drummer. Um, by the way, what I know you play a lot of different instruments, but give me sort of your main instruments and maybe where you started so we understand a bit about your background. So...
0: Uh- when I started off in school, it was uh, sort of like, you know, 50-50% between, you know, the keyboard and the guitar because I started off as being a self-taught musician. And then uh, later on, when I got into dental college, uh, that is when, uh, you know, I decided that since music is anyway going to be a profession of mine for the rest of my life, uh, you know, I would like to overcome a potentially a handicap that could affect me later on in my life. So that's why I took a formal education in music. So I took a distance education course with the London School of Music that I would do in the evenings of my dental college. And in addition to that, I also took up a course in Hindustani classical music. That is the Indian form of classical music. So so that I had a background in both these amazing uh, musical forms. Uh, uh, Then after that, uh, you know, since I became a composer, uh, my main instrument became, you know, like how it becomes, the keyboard and the computer, you know. So that became sort of my main instrument, and uh, and that is my main instrument till now. But when I'm performing on stage, it's usually a bunch of keyboards all connected to a bunch of computers, and you know, and uh, that's basically what I'm uh, what I'm performing on stage. So I'm uh, performing uh, uh, performing keyboard lines, also triggering various stuff and things like that. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's basically my uh, my main instrument. Yeah.
1: That's great. All right, so how did this album with Stuart Copeland come about? Tell me about that. So, uh, uh,
0: in uh, uh, so after the Grammy-winning album that is Winds of Samsara, I've always been wanting to make a follow-up to the album, and uh, it has been on the back of my mind. But my touring schedule has been pretty relentless, so uh, you know. And even though I did albums in the last five years, I did uh, you know quick albums. But the thing is that nothing was. Uh, it was sort of like my magnum opus, you know, like an album which I really spent time on and, you know, and I really worked hard on. And I didn't want this particular album, which was a follow up to Windsor Samsara, to be a quick album. I wanted it to be an album that I would really craft and an album that I would be super proud of. So uh, I did not have the time to record it, but uh, I had a lot of ideas and thoughts that would go into the album, a lot of melodies and things like that. So then, of course, in 2020, last year, the pandemic hit, and I was forced to be in this studio, which I'm sitting down in right now, uh, for an extended period of time. And uh, that is when I remembered my collaboration with Stuart Copeland in 2016. I did one song with him, but I could not actually interact with him uh, for that song because we interacted uh, to, with each other through artist managers. And it was literally me just sending him the tracks and him recording drums and sending it back. And I didn't need to further interact with him because the drums were perfect, you know? I couldn't find a fault in the drums that you know, that would require me to speak to him again. So, (laughs) so, uh, so I mustered up the courage and I uh, got in touch with him again. And I told him that, you know, that I want, I would love to collaborate with you on a whole album. And uh, he asked me to send him the music. I sent him the music and he loved it. And he said that it's an opportunity for him to pull out all these, uh, you know, various ethnic instruments that he's collected for the last like 30 or 40 years of traveling all over the world. And he said that I've got all these instruments and there's so much fun to play on like the Balinese. Uh, 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 what do you call that? Uh, Seng Seng, and you know, and uh, his crotales and his tongue drum, and uh, the various uh, ethnic timpanies, and you know, and what uh, uh, China bells and things like that. So he said that it'd be fun for me to pull out all these things and finally mic them and actually play these instruments on a project. So that's what he did. We spent uh, uh, about half a year uh, collaborating with each other and recording this album, and he co-wrote all the songs with me. And uh, that is how uh, Divine Tides came out to be. And of course, we filmed music videos and all of that stuff. And he was an absolute pleasure, and it was an absolute honor to work with him. And it was like a masterclass, you know, working with
1: him. What do you want people to get from this record? Like, obviously, you you've filmed uh, some, you have video from what the Himalayas, you have, I mean, what do you want to come out of this when people, first of all, people need to go check it out. It's on all the streaming services, right? So sort of you yes. where you can listen to music and then there's videos on YouTube. So go check it out, Divine Tides. What, what do you want this to inspire people to? What sort of action?
0: So I've always believed that, uh, you know, there are uh, two ways to bring about action in people, you know, that, uh, you know, with all the problems that we face on our planet, you know, whether it is, uh, whether it's environmental problems, climate change, or whether it is uh, society problems, like gender inequality, as I mentioned, or poverty or hunger, I think that the biggest uh, threat that all of us face is the constant thought that uh, you know that somebody else will make a difference you know we are always waiting for governments to make a difference for intergovernmental bodies for um, you know for uh, corporations to make a difference but the truth is that you know that what we need right now the need of the hour is behavioral change and uh, uh, you know and changing our own behaviors and uh, making small incremental changes within our own lives and the problem is not that we are all evil people and we don't want to change it's just that we haven't empowered ourselves to believe you know that that these small tiny changes that we make within our own lives will actually make a difference So, and also the kind of narratives that governments give out, you know, that uh, we have to create zero poverty, we have to create zero hunger. So when people, when a common person listens to this, the immediate thought is that, whoa, how can I bring about zero poverty? How can I bring about zero hunger? You know, that's like for uh, for bigger people and leaders to bring about. But, but you know, I think the governments and people need to simplify these messages, you know, that people, where people understand that, you know, zero poverty means just share, you know, and, and uh, don't be selfish, you know, and uh, zero hunger means that don't waste food, you know, and uh, don't, uh, uh, don't overconsume and things like that. But anyway, so, uh, so that's what my music has always been about. It's not about shaming people into action. Uh, which is also a good technique for getting action done but i believe that you know that uh, positive reinforcement is always better because as a uh, uh, as a senegalese philosopher once said a person called baba diom that we as humans will only protect things that we love so our idea is to make everyone fall in love with the natural world so that hopefully through that love we'll conserve protect and sustain so coming to my music every song has got a different topic and every song has got a different idea like the the one song that we have about the himalayas it's basically just a tribute to the beauty of the Himalayas and it's an ode to the Himalayas and sort of like a reminder that the Himalayas, uh, uh, I mean every single human being on this planet is directly or indirectly uh, depending on the Himalayas for their sustenance because the Himalayas has the third highest amount of glacial water in the world after the North and South Pole and also uh, the Himalayas uh, has uh, the, the greatest rivers in the world come out of the Himalayas and there are seven or eight countries that the Himalayas pass through and you know, and uh, uh, so basically that, so that's why I wanted to showcase the beauty and the spiritual angle of the Himalayas because I believe spirituality is a very good way to get people to, uh, you know, protect things, you know, so uh, and then we've got uh, uh, we've we, we've got like various songs about various different uh, topics like there's the Western Ghats in India which is known to be the lungs of uh, the planet just like how the Indian Asian rainforests are and the uh, and the Amazon rainforests are but people do not talk much about the Western Ghats because uh, it's highly undocumented that particular region and uh, filmmakers are not uh, easily permitted in there and you know so very little is known but it's said that the number of species that are endemic to the Western Ghats is uh, equal to the number of species that are endemic to the Amazon. So that's the number of amazing species that are only available in the Western Ghats than anywhere else in the world. So we created a song called Mother Earth and we uh, actually showcased the uh, amazing species of the Western Ghats through that music video, which is going to be releasing soon. So that is basically the whole album, that every song has got uh, an important topic that we wanted to speak about, but through love, you know, and not through shaming people into action.
1: I absolutely love it. Well, everyone should make sure they check it out uh, on YouTube, on Spotify, Divine Tides with Ricky Cage, Stuart Copeland, and then follow Ricky on all the good socials. Feel free to please follow us. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Now to Next. Like it, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And uh, thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Ricky, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much. And I have to say that it was an absolute honor and a pleasure to be interviewed by you because, uh, I mean, that, you know, uh, as you know, you know, I'm a fan of your movies and uh, I think you do a fantastic job when it comes to when it comes to highlighting important social causes and highlighting, uh, you know, the, the human spirit, basically.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on. And I will see you. Uh, I'm sure I will see you soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.